0: Any information in this podcast is not intended to promote or recommend any particular product or services offered by Bell's Family and Associates. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any investor. Before making an investment decision, investors should seek professional advice.
1: Core feels like the melting pot, the great intersection of global commerce at the moment. It is everything from Russians trying to escape Russia to wealthy Chinese to Indians to Westerners either on vacation or trying to do business. Singapore is going off in the biggest way and it was interesting to sort of feel the buzz.
0: That was Gavin and I'm Lucy and welcome to Tomorrow's News. Last week was a big week with the collapse of FTX, midterms and much more. We found some optimism following the CPI results and Gavin shared his predictions on the S&P and called out copper to be the commodity to watch. This week in Asia, a lot has been happening. We had the conclusion of the G20 and at the end of last week, the conclusion of Singles Day Gavin has spent the week in Singapore, so today we have invited very special guest, Will Zhao, to join us on the show. Will is the CEO and co-founder of Yaru Ventures. Will has over 15 years of experience across e-commerce, investment strategy, and brand development to successfully lead the expansion of brands into Asia. I'm very excited to have Will join us today. And I will throw it over to you, Gavin and Will.
1: Good morning, Will. Great to have you on. So the first one I would ask you to comment on is the following. There is no question that there is significant enthusiasm for the growth of the economies in Southeast Asia. And I would sort of rank them by enthusiasm. And please correct me if I'm off on any of this. Indonesia has got to be the number one place people are most excited about followed probably by Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia. Almost no one mentions the Philippines, but the view is the country that people are most interested in is is Indonesia because of its size. That is, it's big enough to be a market on its own. The other markets tend to be a little bit smaller. What's your sense
2: when you hear that? Thank you, Gavin. Thank you, Lucy, for inviting me on. Correct. I think Indonesia itself is a very interesting market in terms of its size and in terms of its population. However, the market itself is very much under-regulated in terms of the process of international products going to the country. There's various different ways of doing things and a lot of unwritten rules about doing things into the market. The government is trying to regulate that properly and are introducing various different processes in place. But I do think it is a growing and potential huge market to develop into. Vietnam is definitely on the way up in terms of both its size and its reach and the spending power of the Vietnamese. It's been a bit of a manufacturing hub for quite some time in the Southeast Asia region. And with the lockdown in China, that has further spurred investment into the country in Vietnam and really propelled the investment and growth opportunity of the country. And you're seeing This rising middle class by China was 10, 15 years ago on the way up. So I think Vietnam shows the most promise in terms of that growth trajectory. On the other markets, Malaysia in terms of, I suppose, the ease of growth, the language they speak and the understanding of the Western market is probably... One of the markets that I'm most interested in terms of getting products into market, having growth in the country, and its proximity to to Singapore. Singapore itself is by far the accelerator in the region. It's taken a lot of business away from what Hong Kong used to be and what Hong Kong had. And... It is growing in terms of financial prowess, investments, and money into the country like we've never seen before. And Asia is benefiting from that, as well as the ability to speak Chinese, the ability to speak English, and they've got a lot of Bahasa-speaking people within the country and traditional Malays who are akin to the Indonesians. So it actually is a gateway into Indonesia. That's right, Will. So...
1: The comment on Singapore is right. I mean, Singapore is the, I'd call it the IP hub of the whole region at the moment. The capital emerges out of Singapore, goes to other places, and a lot of the strongest sort of thinkers sit in Singapore. But it was an interesting comment that was made saying, look, don't write off Hong Kong quite yet, because Singapore isn't the gateway to China. Hong Kong remains the gateway to China. And while we are, of course, more cautious on Chinese growth, they said anybody who wants to access the Chinese market or have relationships in China, it's going to be through Hong Kong, not through Singapore. What's your observation there, Will?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Singapore is by no means a gateway into China. I do think at this point in time, Hong Kong remains a gateway into China. Hong Kong has got a number of advantages and it is very closely aligned with China itself. I do make one observation though. I think the idea of actually taking back Taiwan to become part of China is in the longer view of the Chinese people that making Taiwan the gateway into China. If you had to look at Taiwan and Hong Kong side by side, Taiwan has got a lot more similarities to mainland China than Hong Kong does. And Taiwan, if it is part of China, will become that gateway. Let me just jump in there because one
1: observation made to me by a Shanghaese who now lives in Singapore, and I asked him the question, I said, so if you were to do a poll in China, I don't know if there are such things, but if you were to do a poll in China, what percentage of Chinese people would say Taiwan should be part of China. Basically, how popular would be the idea that you should take back Taiwan? And he said, north of 80%. Maybe in some of the elites and in some of the urban centers, you'd have a more balanced view. He said, but by and large in China, Chinese people, 80% of them think Taiwan should be back. He said, look, if you look at a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the plans, he said, his bet would be 2027 is when she takes back Taiwan. Of course, he has no particular insight. He said just if you kind of look at the rhythm, the timing, the way that policies are set out, Xi's own timing in terms of his own leadership and so forth, he said 2027 feels right. I
2: would think even probably more than 80% of the people within China are for Taiwan being part of China. Without a doubt, if you ask every person on the street, the sentiment is strong that Taiwan should be part of China and is actually part of China. They don't actually think Taiwan is a separate entity by itself. However, my view on the general population of actually using force to take back Taiwan I would probably sit on the fence a little bit in saying that not more than half of the people will probably say no, do not use force to take back Taiwan and cause a great war in the region. But the desire is strong to take Taiwan back peacefully. And if it does go to war, I think half the population would support and the other half probably would not support it simply because the Chinese people are not, by nature-driven people. They tend to want to resolve things in peaceful means if possible. So I'd agree with the sentiment of Taiwan being part of China. Yeah, great insights. Um, Well,
1: now just to talk a little bit about capital flows, there's no question global capital flows into Singapore are strong. There are all kinds of structures allowing people to have residence with setting up effectively single-family offices. Singapore has been very fast to act in terms of taking advantage of the desire of capital leave Hong Kong, desire of capital leave China. Having said that, recently Hong Kong has enacted some new rules. They definitely are trying to fight back. But as a financial center for the region, Singapore feels to me from all of my conversations to be probably in the early innings of creating, not dissimilar to say a London, you know, as we would have felt about London in maybe the 80s and 90s, where you've probably got a 20-year run here of growth and of new services sitting around all of that wealth. Interestingly, the focus of investment is quite diverse. And I found that much more so than Hong Kong, or frankly, even Sydney, it's much less about let's go buy real estate here or there, or let's go buy uh, operating business, but rather let's look at financial assets globally. And there's a lot more focus on, I would say, traditional asset management and asset allocation versus what we've seen traditionally out of Chinese investors which has been that heavy focus on real estate and underlying operating businesses. That suggests to me that there is going to be more capital flowing into the financial system in the region and more capital for growth businesses and so forth. A couple of interesting interest counters on that side. The first one is exits in Southeast Asia out of Growth businesses have been few and far between and difficult to come by. So, as growth investors, as venture investors, I think we need to be very careful. So, the note of caution is that exits out of Asian startups have been few and far between, and there's not really a robust MA or IPO pathway. The other most interesting fact is that over 90% of the successful companies, call it the startup or emerging company environment in Asia are copies. They're copies of business models from the rest of the world. And I thought that was really interesting because we always, of course, are looking for disruption in Asia. But at the end of the day, if you want to look at what's going to work in Asia, it's probably something that has worked or is working elsewhere. And then the last one is that there are really only two models to operate from in Asia, which is the only country that you can focus on as a single country that's probably big enough is Indonesia. You can be single country in, say, Thailand or Vietnam, but you need to be multi product. If you're based in Singapore, or you probably are a company that's going to have to be global from day one, because at the end of the day, Singapore itself as a market is not a robust market, but the kinds of founders you find in Singapore are, I'm going to call them global from startup observations there. Maybe we'll just throw it over to you before we close up. What are you finding are the products and services that are really the most exciting in all of the engagement that
2: you have? Yeah, look, it's interesting that I think there are a number of different categories that are continuing to grow amongst all of the Southeast Asia countries that I've been sort of working with, uh, namely Malaysia, Singapore, Brunei, Vietnam, Cambodia, and some parts of Indonesia as well as the Philippines. Look, I think your point about a lot of the copying is also resonating with a lot of products that are popular in Southeast Asia region at this point in time. Those that have made their glory days in China. Are now start seeing their category growth accelerate in Southeast Asia. So the health, wellness, and beauty industry is growing rapidly. What was popular in China five years ago are starting to get really, really popular amongst all the growing nations. So you've got infant formula that are sort of picking up its slack. Wine is the alcohol and beverage sector is seeing some tremendous growth. And the skincare. Supplements are all in those categories. So what you can almost replicate what was popular in China five years ago. Those categories are beginning to also see a lot of growth in Southeast Asia, as well as you know things like social media, live streaming, the use of KOLs from a marketing perspective, the rise of TikTok in the region. They're all key trends that was popular in China, and there still somewhat is years ago. That are replicating itself in Southeast Asia. So I think it's a well-trodden playbook. What is interesting is the different market dynamics within each of those markets and the various different process and compliance and route to market processes that are different. So I think growth will continue for some time. And I think you know the pathway to market will continue to change as well. The various different tools used to promote and taking products into the region will continue to evolve as well. But overall, very bullish across those markets. We're seeing great growth. Some of our clients are seeing really good growth as well. And uh, I think this is a good bet to be putting on when China is recovering place, I would say. Fantastic. Great insights.
1: Well, we've been great to chat with you today and get your insights.
0: Thank you so much, Will and Gavin. That was a really insightful conversation. Will will be speaking at the Alibaba Australia Global Business Forum in Sydney at the end of the month. So if you are around, please stop by. It's free to register and attend and have a chat to him. And if you'd like to see more guests on the show, like Will, drop us a line and we'd love to hear your feedback. And our favorite segment, Gavin, who are you looking at on Twitter this week?
1: Sure. Well, I think we've focused a lot about China. Most interesting person I follow is a guy named Michael Pettis, P-E-T-T-I-S. He is a professor actually at the Guangha School of Management at Peking University. He's not a mouthpiece for the Chinese government. He is very balanced. He's actually been very pessimistic about an awful lot of things that have been going on. He was quite early on the real estate crisis, He is fascinating to follow. He's a Carnegie Mellon fellow as well, has some great articles, great insights on what's going on and very, very thoughtful. So if you're looking for insights on the Chinese economy, highly recommend following him.
0: Amazing. We'll include that in our show notes and we'll continue our discussions in our WhatsApp groups.
1: Have a great weekend, everybody.
0: Thank you. And that's tomorrow's news. We'll be back next week.